What's up, bikers? I'm Robert. This is the Biker Bar Podcast, episode 126. Wow, that's crazy. How many times have I said, wow, that's crazy at the beginning of this episode of an episode? Anyways, 126 episodes. Today, we're going to have stands, no tubes on. Super excited to talk to them. If you guys aren't familiar with them, I don't know what rock you're hiding under. So before we go ahead and get started, however comma do me a favor if you have been watching this show and you're doing it on youtube and you haven't hit the subscribe button do that hit the subscribe button it's really simple little button down there makes the little subscribe button number go up and then i get happy and i keep doing this and that's good times if you have and you like this though you can hit the thumbs up if you're listening to this on a podcast do me a favor write a review i haven't swung by apple podcast this week to see if anybody wrote one from the last week when I was talking to you guys about it. But it'd be rad if there was one. Five-star review. If it's a four-star review you're thinking, it's probably not worth your time. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> but um, if you want something for free, you can just tune in. You can either download this on your favorite podcast app, whatever, Google, StreamYard, uh, all, the, all the players, right? All the big ones. I can't think of the one with yes right now. Why am I drawing Spotify? There you go. <laughs> Anyways, um, if you want something else for free, you can swing by Instagram. Check out at BikerB1 or Facebook at BikerB1 as well. Throwing up pictures and whatever I'm whatever I got going on, and you can go to check into that and see what's going on with the channel. Um, that's about it. That's that's all I got. That's all I got. Oh. If you really, really want to help out, you can swing by Patreon as little as a buck a month. It helps uh, buy camera gear, put beer in the fridge, keep me talking every week. So it's up to you. Anyways, we'll go ahead and bring on our guest. We got Mike. How's it going, Mike? Good. How are you doing, Robert? Man, I am I am living the dream, right? <laughs> good. good. I, I got a buddy that says nightmares are dreams, too. <laughs> so it's all perspective. Right, right. You never know. You never know what's going on. So, um, so people that are listening or watching know who you are. Mike, can you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do over there at Stands. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm sitting in State College, PA. So we have we have two offices here on the East Coast and uh, some remote folks. I'm in our, our State College office, and um, see, I've been with Stands officially 17 years on the payroll. Oh wow. Um, the last nine as president. And, oh. Uh, yeah, holding down the fort as best we can. Um, I had an engineering background. That's okay. how I got involved originally. And I did about four years as a, as a consultant when I worked okay. real jobs and uh, would just help out Stan and Cindy, the founders, uh, nights and weekends, take vacation from the real job to go and, and work a dinner bike or a, a old Pedro's Fest up in New England and so on. Uh-huh. Yeah, been at it for a long time. Have uh, designed a lot of parts back in the day and Thankfully, we have other people to do that too. But um, yeah, just herding cats and, and trying to keep things moving forward. So you said seventeen years. So you're you're like a, like employee number two, or you know, I don't know the actual number. Honestly, it's it's a it's a single digit. Yeah. Um, but uh, maybe four or five. Yeah. Mops. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was a pretty small crew whenever you joined. Yeah, yeah, and and some of those, I think. Maybe two or three of those folks are still here as well. So we've got awesome. some long, long tenured folk around here. Yeah, you know that says a lot about your company. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think you almost answered one of my first. So there, there is a stand. Is there? There's an actual stand. Oh yeah, yeah. There's an actual stand. Um, so it was uh, kind of his his brainchild in the beginning, and uh, his wife Cindy uh, prompted him to actually do something with the idea rather than just you know use it amongst his friends. So uh -huh. that's that's kind of what led us into the NoTubes.com world and early, early, early ecom type of setups and then uh, eventually getting out into dealers and working our way into distribution and OEM and so on. Yeah, there, there is a stand. They're officially yeah. retired now, but um, just just spoke to Cindy this morning. So yeah, they're they're out there. Right on. Um, so how did the idea come about? Because it was, I mean, I was riding back then and everybody seemed to be fine with tubes other than the fact that we had to like put them in all the time and they were a pain in the ass, but you know what I mean? It wasn't like there was like a bunch of people going, man, this is horrible. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I guess it depends where you rode at the time. Right. right? right. Yeah. Yeah, would tell you that it was absolutely horrible. Yeah. Uh, 50 PSI and, and pinch flats constantly and thorns and so on. So kind of the original genesis of the idea for stand back then was, um, it's kind of early, early days of UST, the Mavic universal, tubeless system that was developed mm -hmm. and they had partnered with uh, Hutchinson at the time on a couple of tires. And I think Stan had just purchased a new bike and it did not come with tubeless wheels. And mm -hmm. he, he's what we would call one of the original weight weenies yeah. of the day, um, obsessed with the weight of everything. So rather than go out and, and spend more money on heavier wheels, just because they were the new cool thing, he said, uh, what can I do with what I already have? And started tinkering essentially around with different ideas of how to seal those wheels airtight mm -hmm. and then how to, uh, to deal with the tires because tire selection was poor. They didn't really work in our, in our area and um, they were heavier. They, they didn't retain air as they should. And yeah, just led into what can we, what can we use to seal the tire that will also prevent punctures going forward and, and end up being a lighter system and people that are out there that, that were around for the early days of tubeless know all the trials and tribulations of what fit together and what worked and what didn't. And that's right. kind of how we evolved with different products through the years. It's funny because I am, I, um, I guess I, I'm, I'm in that old school mentality of, I, I remember when there wasn't a quote unquote tubeless tire and, mm -hmm. and, um, People ask me like, oh, well, I want to go tubeless. What do I need to buy? And I'm like, well, you can just buy the stands kit, can't you? Like, because because in my mind, all all you needed was the tape and uh, the um, the stem and then the, the, the uh, basically the sealant, right? I mean, it, is that still the case? I mean, obviously, the newer tires and stuff like that, and they hold the bead better and stuff like that. But you could still just tape any tire, right? Yeah, so the, the earliest of days, we would tape any rim airtight. Uh, yeah. And at that time, we were using like a two-tape system, so it was a little more cumbersome. It wasn't kind of designed for the process. And and then you would in install your tires. It was a standard tube-type tire. You could use a tubeless tire, but that was rare again because the tire selection wasn't very good. And you would try and convert your standard tire. Of course, they were never meant to be tubeless, so the beads weren't sized correctly, maybe not strong enough. Mm -hmm. uh, the tires were incredibly porous and so on, but that was the very first system. Two layers of tape and the sealant inside. And mm -hmm. sealant, at one time we sold a concentrate that you mixed at home with some instructions we provided, and then everybody thought that was too much hassle. So 
we did the pre-mixed sealants and started to refine that formulation and so on. And then we kind of moved from there into, um, people remember the rubber rim strip systems that had an integrated valve stem. And it was like a big rubber band that stretched uh -huh. on the rim. And what we noticed over time was certain tires fit better than others. Certain rims were sized better for the conversion, but this rubber rim strip would fill the gap between you've got like your tire bead and then the, the bead seat area. Mm -hmm. That gap would be quite large on a, a traditional rim of the day. So the rubber strip filled that space and allowed you to run pretty much anything tubeless and it was easier to inflate or retain the bead better, so on and so forth. Right. So and nowadays then, then it's basically that, that bead tech is, is what you're paying for is like being able to have the bigger bead. And yeah. There, I mean, there've been a lot of changes. We can, we could really go down a rabbit hole on how rims have uh, evolved and so on, but rim sizing was better. Rim geometry as a whole, um, the bead seat area was better defined. The tire sizing got better over time and uh, allowed you to eliminate that rubber strip. So you just had that tire bead to rim contact uh -huh. and creating the same thing. So our, our little saying here, one of the sales guys came up with was shape, tape, and sealant. So if the shape of the rim is correct, you apply the tape, and then the sealant will take care of the rest. So that's where we're at today with tubeless ready, basically. Right. And, and as far as your sealant, you have you guys have one one type of sealant and that's it, right? Uh, we do two different formulations for ourselves. We private label for some other folks too with, with tweaks uh -huh. and adjustments, but uh, we have our standard formulation, which hasn't changed in quite some time. It's a natural mm -hmm. latex product. A lot of reasons we do that with some additives and particulate and so on that we feel is just the best uh, product for the widest range of uses. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we do a race formulation as well. So that was something that, We've done for a long, long time, but didn't sell until maybe five or six years ago, just under mm -hmm. constant questions and pressure from people to get their hands on it. We, we produced it for race teams. It would always be squirreled away in the World Cup pits or, or what have you. And people would go, what's that bottle over there? Why does it have something written on it? And that yeah. was our race formulation that we tested with all our, our sponsored teams. So that is the same base liquid, but it uses twice the normal amount of crystals, what we call ceiling crystals or the particulate and an additional much larger uh, particulate that helps to seal bigger punctures, cuts, slices, et cetera. Downsides there, you cannot introduce race sealant through a valve stem like we do with mm -hmm. standard sealant. So if, if you like that clean approach and less mess, uh, use the standard sealant. If you don't mind opening the tire bead, you are going to a racer, an event. It means a lot to you. It's your, your big thing for the year, the enduro, the, the cross country, what have you. Mm -hmm use race sealant it just it will it doesn't last quite as long in the tire yeah and that's because it does start to snowball effectively what people have noticed through the years and what we affectionately call stanimals uh, yeah little shaped monsters that show up from time to time that's more likely to happen in race sealant yeah i um i i i am not a person that opens my tire up to add sealant very often <laughs> and so i've definitely found quite the uh quite the large, large, uh, stanimal zoo going on in there a few times. Yeah. You guys depending on your, 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 uh, preference for brand and so on. Um, you know, you can be left with these large particles inside. You'd be left with a very thick layer of sealant, just clinging to everything. You could be yeah. left with what looks like a liquid that would be effective in, in the next puncture, but it's really not. It's just the remaining additives, the, the latex or, or what have you is just, you know, clinging to the tire. Some of the, the ingredients have evaporated, et cetera. What's the, um, 
what's the actual amount of time you're supposed to swap that stuff out? It's highly variable. I always hate giving that answer. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were from upstate New York originally. So New York in the winter, it'll last six, seven, eight months in a tire, uh, sometimes more, um, you know, cool, humid at times. But uh, it depends on, you know, where you store the bike, how often you ride, how much did you put in there to start with, how porous was the tire casing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So someone in Arizona in the middle of summer might only see three or four weeks uh, before they oh, need wow. to do a refresh. It, it can vary that much. Um, so okay. we always just encourage people to do a refresh, open it up, take a look inside, add some if you need to. You don't really have to clean out the old so much as top off what you already have. Uh -huh. And then you're back in business. You know, it takes, takes a few minutes, but it's worth the peace of mind, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I definitely need to. What, what I basically do is keep riding until all the air comes out of my tire when I run <laughs> something over. And yep. then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I should put more in. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we hear those stories all the time at events and things. Oh, I just had a flat. Well, did you check your sand? No, I haven't done that in two years. Well, yeah, it'll cost you a few bucks, but it's worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I just keep pumping more in there. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, it's got to be out by now. And then I open it up and it's got this like stanimal the size of my hand in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, from as someone that makes sealant, I'll say, go ahead and put in as much as you want. But yeah. <laughs> the truth is, you don't have to do that. You can. Yeah. yeah. So there's a bunch of people out there that add all kinds of crap to their sealant, like mm -hmm. glitter and God knows what. What do you? How? What's the official take on that? Is it does it do anything? Is it ruin the way it works? Or it doesn't ruin anything per se, but you could start to create that stanimal effect. We'll call it. Uh, uh -huh. things are snowballing and collecting as, as the sealant, the latex portion dries out. Um, I, I've seen some crazy things added to sealant through the years. You know, everything we put in there is, is a natural product, basically. So mm -hmm. if you spill it on the trail, if you have to change a flat in the parking lot, you know, you're not going to hurt anything. Um, you could add some crazy stuff into your sealant that maybe wouldn't be quite as friendly to have yeah. laying around in a puddle somewhere. So. I'd say that's something to be aware of. You know, glitters are often plastics and things that we don't necessarily want scattered on our trails. But right, um, yeah, yeah, it, you're not going to hurt anything. I don't know that you're going to gain anything either. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody's after like, oh, it's going to get this bigger hole or something like that. And yeah, I mean, if you're running like tire whizzes or something, I wouldn't want to add sand to my sealant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was there, or when you reinflate your tire, you you always get a little bit coming back out of the valve you don't necessarily want that in your your pump head or your co2 head right what's the craziest thing you've heard sand is that was that a real oh, one your sand there's i've heard kitty litter i've heard the glitter of course uh, i mean yeah you'd be surprised if people come up there <laughs> yeah apparently i have a hard enough time just putting sealant in there so right. yeah, you're not the guy to, to go looking for new additives <laughs> yeah that's definitely the case so, um, dang, that's that. It's it's interesting what what people come up with on on their own, you know. Yeah, I mean, and I said I don't knock it. That's you know essentially how Stan got the idea originally was he played around with hundreds of different things until he started to hit on something that that worked effectively enough that we could start refining and and commercialize. And Did he had some kind of the idea was never to sell it. He was just telling people how to make the product hit them uh -huh. at home themselves. So. Did he have some kind of background in something that would 
lead him to to try that or no, he's just kind of no. like just constant tinkerer. Yeah, that's just, yeah. just the type of guy he is. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Oh man, like three times I've come up with this question while you're talking, and I can't remember what the hell it is. So we'll just go ahead. <laughs> You'll come to you, you know. yeah 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 next time i'm gonna write it down but anyways so um so you guys do the sealant thing for quite some time i i would say like how long was it that you guys were doing just sealant until you started to branch off i mean we did kind of various tubeless kits and sealant and things until i mean it's probably about two years really before we brought another product to market Mm -hmm. what, half, was, what was the year that you guys started? I'm sorry. Uh, it was 2000, late, late so part 2000. of 2000. Yeah. Um, so the, the next product that came along, I guess there were a few little things in between and I'll get the timing wrong, but if you remember time pedals were pretty big at one point. Yeah, I, I still those. run them. So to me, they're still, still great pedals, but uh, we did a titanium uh, conversion kit for those. That was titanium axles, titanium springs and aluminum pins that replaced all the seal parts. Uh -huh. There was a stock version available with a titanium axle as well or spindle. Oh, nice. um, but yeah, we did that for a while and those did really well, but they were expensive to make and you know, uh -huh. sealant started to take a bigger share of, of our time. And um, we did aluminum brake rotors for a long time. And those started pretty oh, early yeah. on, which nobody's foolish enough to do these days, but that was really difficult, but they were super, super light. And again, Sam was a weight weenie. Uh -huh. I probably did 65 rotor designs over the years. Uh -huh. We did out of various aluminums and various plating processes and so on. And they worked. They were just a little sketchy for some situations. <laughs> <laughs> but that was kind of kind of fun. And then um, I guess the first one after that was our first rim model. Mm -hmm. Really the first one we designed and had extruded, it, it was terrible. It never slept the light of day. And then the second version of that rim was known as the 355G at the time because it weighed 355 grams and we're not all that original when it comes to naming products. It's <laughs> probably the single hardest thing we do is name products. Right. Um, so the 355G, and that was one of those rims that, that used a rubber rim strip. So it had uh -huh. its own strip design and had a pretty unique shape at the time, but it allowed us to do a super light aluminum rim, which kind of put us on the map with rims a little bit and some early success in the the world cup type racing scene and then um, that one sort of led into the first rim that, that carried one of our patents which was uh the olympic model mm -hmm. um, which you couldn't call the olympic model now the ioc would be all over you really fast but again right. we're not getting naming products <laughs> it got the olympic name because the prototypes were sent to some of the pros we were providing sealant to back in the day mm -hmm. the 2004 athens olympics and a couple of them raced it um some probably weren't allowed to but did it anyway and we theoretically were part of winning four medals that year so uh was was a nice little kickoff to that before that was launched to the public officially that was 2004 when that one came around yeah and i think the first set of the first set of, of stands that i had probably was like 2007 or eight i had the flows Okay. And, and uh, the aluminum. And um, I remember asking, because I didn't really know much about building my own wheels at that point in time. And just remember asking around, people were like, man, these things are like rock solid. And mm -hmm. uh, I had those those wheels for years. And yeah, actually, I think 
one of them still hanging up in the garage <laughs> in here. I never trued them. They were like, they were yeah. like perfect. I, they, they were really good wheels. Yeah. So the first, you know, we did the Olympic rim and then we did the a new version of the 355 because we still did rim brake stuff back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going back a long ways here. Yeah. Yeah. We might as well. We a rim brake version and that was the 355 model. And then we did an arch and a flow. So it took me like three years of, bugging stand to say we got to do something more trail oriented let's do uh -huh. the flow what became the flow model and then that yeah. one found early success in downhill racing which we never anticipated but i mean really really uh, high profile race wins on that model but if you want to go back that far that rim was 23 millimeters wide so really <laughs> the flow was yeah the flow that was a big rim that was a wide rim at the time and it was it was, it was world cup downhill races yeah that's funny. Yeah, because I remember back then I was running like two, three, five tires and everybody would ask me like why I was running tires so big. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm a big dude. So I would just be like, man, well, if you're as big as me, man, you want as much grip as you can get. Now it's like if I had a two, three, five on my tire, everybody would be like, what are you doing? There's road bike, there's gravel tires on your mountain. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. The, the Crest Arch Flow has been around now since yeah, 2005, 2006, really. Uh, uh -huh. that family is still still here i mean they've been updated a few times but mm -hmm. yeah those names are are etched in so you guys then i mean not like immediately after that but somewhere along the line here you, you launched the carbon wheel that's the baron right we've done a few carbon models now our first one was called the valor and everything had the name ZTR tacked onto it, which was an old zero two brim because the bike industry needed more acronyms. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so we, uh, <laughs> it was called the Valor was our first carbon model. That was 2014 um, and uh, really successful at launch. We had we struggled a little bit uh, shortly after launch with some QC issues from our supplier, we, but we still work with them today. So we worked it out, uh, got this back out onto the market pretty quickly. And then, um, yeah, people just started riding them and raving about the ride quality. So that was really what I call the quest for compliance, uh, mm -hmm. which we did cross the line at some point there, but trying to get a more compliant carbon wheel. I think, yeah, it's probably revisionist history to some extent, but I think we were really the first people to say carbon wheels are cool. They have some great benefits, but they just ride like rocks. Mm -hmm. um, and that was feedback we were getting from a lot of our testers and other riders and so on. And mm -hmm. They liked them. It was potentially more durable, potentially lighter, but the ride quality wasn't there. So we, we were seeking that compliance and it, it really came through in that model. Uh, mm -hmm. People started to kind of take notice of that. And um, yeah, I think 2015, we, we ended up doing like a commemorative t-shirts. We had 15 cross country national champions at the elite level globally on Valor wheels. Oh, wow. So it really, yeah, really, uh, Kind of changed things for us on the wheel game a little bit but um, mm -hmm. yeah since then we've done quite a few other models the podium sort of replaced the valor mm -hmm. and then cross country segment um we did uh, a crest arch and then came along with a flow and a baron um where we kind of partnered with ibis bicycles on that those two mm -hmm. models you know they, they had done the wide thing a bit earlier than others and uh, we worked with the same supplier in in asia and uh, they so like what we did. We have a, a flow that's in carbon as well. Yes. Yep. There is a flow model. I just so, uh, so does that have the the offset 
spokes on it as well as the Baron or yeah, Plum and Baron both are asymmetric rims. Yeah. So the the real trick there is um, there have been plenty of other carbon asymmetric rims, but when you start evaluating them really closely from a tubeless perspective, uh, that asymmetric rim profile with nearly equal spoke tensions does some interesting things with the bead seat geometry. Um, so we really sought to make sure when that wheel is tensioned and ready to install the tire that those beads are uh, at the same height, basically, that the bead seats are at the same height. And a lot of other carbon wheels you find out there that are asymmetric don't do that. So when they're laced and tensioned properly, one side of the rim is taller than the other. Oh, wow. That's so, interesting. Yeah, it's really minute details, but, you know, we've been two those people from day one. You know, we had a couple uh -huh. little shiny objects along the way, but we only think about tubeless. We only do tubeless things at this point. So mm honing -hmm. in on those details wasn't by accident. You know, we're measuring and evaluating competitive product. We've, we've spent stupid amounts of money sending wheels through uh, CT scans mm -hmm. uh, with and without tires inflated and, and getting an idea of what happens when a tire inflates, what kind of compression the wheel sees, what sort of... Uh, things happen with the bead and the geometry of the rim mm -hmm. so we really dialed in those details and i think anybody that's been on those wheels can tell you that it, it works <laughs> the way it's supposed to and uh yeah just it's all a quest for for better product and better ride yeah i had a, a set of the barons and um i would say when i first started riding them that they were it felt like they were like too compliant to me but I um, also was just getting on a 29er. So okay. I, I think some of it might have actually just been the actual 29er like flex itself. Sure. Because after yeah. I had ridden the wheels for, let's just say a month, I didn't notice it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it was kind of, I think it was just me personally. But I remember at first thinking like, oh, I don't know if I like this. You, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're a low section height. There's definitely some adjustment there, and the feel is different. But like you say, changing yeah. changing wheel diameter at the same time, yeah, hard to separate those two. But yeah, I really think that's what it was because there was all kinds of stuff that for me, I, I've been a long time twenty seven five guy. So to like getting used to the twenty nine er, I mean, even the first couple of weeks, I I couldn't even hit jumps right. Like it just <laughs> felt like like my timing was always yeah. off, you know, yeah. and and I. It was really weird, you know, like, so there was a lot of things going on in my mind. So I wasn't like out just like screaming at the top, these wheels or, you know, what I, mean? I was like, I need to like figure this all out first. And then, um, but like I said, later on down the road, I couldn't, I really couldn't tell. So was there a specific reason that you guys decided to partner with Ibis on that? Or it was just like, yeah, I mean, I known some of the guys at Ibis for quite a while. Um, you know, they, they were early to the wider rims. You know, they were doing 35s um, before a lot of other people. And it definitely has some merit. Uh, we don't go crazy wide with a lot of our stuff. We do some 35s, but we, we're happier in that 25 to 30 range, depending on the application. Um, mm -hmm. Because we're looking at how tires shape and fit and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, they were early to that. They were doing a lot of carbon product, obviously. I mean, I still ride, ride an Ibis bike. Uh, on a regular basis and um, they liked what we did with tubeless and they knew that their their tubeless application could be a little bit better we liked what they did with rims so no reason yeah. to 
you know, compete against one another when we're, we're friends anyway. Let's let's figure out yeah. a way to make this work and, and put some good stuff out there. So does the Ibis wheel have the a similar like internal shape to it as this the stands one? They're or? identical. They they come out of the same molds. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we uh, we worked with them back and forth in their engineering team on on getting that geometry the way everybody was happy. Um, you know, there's yeah, basically the same product. Yeah, yeah. Right on. Well, that's cool. That's good. To, good to know. Yeah. <clears throat> I um actually have a set of the ibis wheels on my ladies bike so yeah if it's uh if it has the s moniker you know they'll call them 35s's and so on that that means it has our bst which is our rim design patents uh -huh. incorporated and it'll say a little stands there somewhere on the decal right on but those are the ones we've done with them so you guys have a handful of um acronyms for your your <laughs> products that you guys have come out with um off off the top of your head what what are, what, do you, what do you got going on with those uh so ztr was a we didn't know what to call the, back to this naming nonsense right right, we right. What, we didn't know what to call the first rims we had done so we did like a little contest with our customers and said well, who's got an idea and, and somebody threw out ztr is zero two brim and uh -huh. went with it and they got a free set of wheels or whatever it was at the time so that stuck with us for a long time um looks like you have a BST and BST asymmetric? Yeah, so BST was kind of the next one to come along and that was our, what we call bead socket technology. And it was just a way to define that patented shape that we had around the sidewall and bead seat area. You know, Got so it. Got it. The, the tire bead, like a socket. Um, and then uh, we've done variants off that now. So there was a BSTR, which is our kind of road application. There are things we tweak about the road application from the mountain application. BSTA uh -huh. means it's the asymmetric version, so things like that. Just just variations on a theme. When was it that you guys decided to um, start doing hubs as well? Uh, let's see. When was that? Um, was it? Did it like basically come like right at the same time you were doing the rims, or was it a while later? Yeah, you, know, you know, we we were doing rims and we we're doing a fair amount of custom builds on those rims. Uh -huh. So I mean, if we go back. To the beginning of building wheels the problem was we, we just wanted to sell rims originally and uh -huh. then uh, inevitably someone calls and says well my local shop doesn't build wheels or i don't know where to get this wheel built uh can you build my wheel for me so mm -hmm. uh okay i guess we build wheels now and and we yeah. have people around with wheel building experience so we weren't you know totally green to it they're like who who can build a wheel in here <laughs> place this thing up um <laughs> kind of started down that path at the time boy, we used Early days, we used a lot of American classic hubs back to the whole weight weaning thing. They were some uh -huh. of the lightest things going at the time. Uh, we used a little bit of WTB hubs then, some DTs, some Chris Kings, et cetera, just for various price points and what people were asking for at the yeah, time. Yeah. And then um, did that for quite a while. And it, at some point, I think, uh, you know, American classic was doing more and more wheel business. I think they wanted to do more with their hubs and their wheels and so on. And I think WTB got out of the hub game and we used some DT Swiss for a while, but their flange geometry is a little unique and was giving basically some difficulties around building super light rims, you know, mm -hmm. which was kind of our, our thing. Uh, so we ended up looking for someone in Asia that could do a hub that would work for us and give us that flange geometry we wanted to, to provide more stability for the wheel. Uh, equalize so, the so when you're talking about the, the flange geometry, like, for people that aren't super familiar with with a wheel like 
just how big the area is that the spokes connect to, I guess. Is right. So, yeah, you've got your cassette mounted on, on your drive side of the rear wheel, let's say, and your, your brake mounted on the non-drive side. So you've got two constraints. Your dropouts are only so wide. I've got wider through the ears, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, you only have so much room to work with in there. And the flanges where the spokes connect on either side. Mm -hmm. And depending on where you place those flanges, of course, you can't go out too far because then you'll hit your rotors or your cassette. Um, where you place those flanges and the diameter of the flanges and, and things of that nature dictate a lot of how the, the spoke tension, uh, the end result of the spoke tension is. So if you place them in such a way that you have a big difference in tension left to right, you're accounting for the dish of the wheel and so on to, to fit your components, that can lead to a wheel that's not as durable long-term or not as stable mm -hmm. in certain situations. So we're looking at geometry there to maximize the life of the wheel and so on. When you had a rim, so in those days, we're talking 26 inch stuff, it might've been competitor rims might've been 490, 500 grams. We came along with a 355 gram model. You can't build those the same way that you build a 450 plus gram rim. Mm -hmm. So that, that tension balance became more critical. And started to learn a lot about how that geometry affects the build and the longevity and so on. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the feel of the wheel. So with the asymmetric ones, is the tension closer to the same on both the spokes? Right. So we've, we've especially on our Mark IV aluminum models, really positioned uh, that offset in the asymmetric to be as close as we can get to equal spoke tension left and right. Uh, Interesting. Just makes the wheel last a lot longer. Ultimately, that's what really it comes down to is how long the wheel lasts. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Learn, learn a little something. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of little nuances and details in there, of course. But yeah, you can angle your flanges. You can move them left and right a little bit. You can, you know, try and maximize triangulation. But when you do that, because you're constrained by the cassette, then you can see these big tension imbalances, even. In some cases with an asymmetric rim, you just can't bring that back enough. You can't offset it far mm -hmm. enough and make it fit everything else it needs to. And doing asymmetric rims, like I said, the bead seat balance comes into play. So we're, we're thinking about the tubeless aspect. We're thinking about how you lace it and where those spokes will fall. How wide is the channel as a result? So you can still mount tires um, from either side of the, of the rim. Uh, is the bead seat wide enough? Like you could really cheat it way to the one side, but then your bead seat gets very narrow and it's not going to work very well tubeless, but mm -hmm. you could maybe get better tension balance. What's mm -hmm. better? Well, we need, we need tires to stay on and, and perform well tubeless. We maybe have to cheat back a millimeter or something. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of things to balance in that, that equation ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a lot more going on there than I would ever imagine. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm definitely not one of those guys that really like, super digs into technology i just kind of like take it for granted you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean there's things i'm like you know i flipped light switch on well, it works but i don't really yeah. think about how they got that electric to my house right <laughs> right, right take that for right. granted too got a bunch of kites up on the hill with keys on it right? <laughs> just catching electricity on wheels whatever it is. <laughs> yeah yeah totally. we've got a few certified wheel geeks around here that think about yeah. these things and obsess over those details so ultimately so what would like then i always hear a difference in like how the wheels laced as well like what pattern how does that play into it yeah i mean there's a there's a lot to consider there but we could we'd go a few hours on uh, 
lacing patterns and spoke gauges and, and things uh -huh. of that nature. But all of those things are important considerations in the wheel itself. Uh -huh. so that's why, you know, like a system wheel, what people come to know as a system wheel where it's kind of one size fits all. This is the, this is the spoke you're going to get. This is the nipple we're going to use. And it's yeah. always on this rim and hub. It works for most people, but right. like any of us that start geeking out on this stuff a little bit, like, oh, but I want this and that, and I, I'm looking for this kind of feel. Then, you know, you go down that rabbit hole with a custom wheel builder that really knows their stuff, and they're mm -hmm. going to talk to you about, you know, trailing spokes and leading spokes and lacing them certain directions and, you know, a different spoke gauge on the drive side versus the non-drive side, and oh, you, wow. you can go crazy. Um, is that dictated all, by the rim or is that dictated by the hub or it's just by the builder? Yeah, really when, you know, we, we do custom build, um, uh -huh. availability of parts has been difficult for the last two years, obviously, but, um, we do a lot of custom builds and those questions are usually, you know, where do you ride? How much do you ride? What's your bike set up? What's your weight geared up? What do you, what's your, you know, style? Some people are bigger guys, but they're not mashers, you know, they can be pretty yeah. and easy. Um, yeah terrain history of other wheels what which wheels have you ridden that worked well which ones haven't uh, what size yeah. tires do you like to run etc etc like you know this list of 20 yeah. or 30 things you can go down um, you know do you want to use them just for raining racing is it for training is it you need to be your all-around wheel set or are you going to swap them when you want to run a different tire it's just right a million things you can cover that um, really hone in on, on getting the right set of wheels for the right person mm-hmm so custom builders, your local bike shop that knows your terrain, maybe knows you as a customer from the last five bikes they've sold you. I mean, that's that's a great resource to start with. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's kind of like getting yeah. tire knowledge. You can read online, hey, this tire is great. But if you live in sandy conditions and I live in loamy conditions, yeah. no, it's kind of a different animal. Tires is one of those things where I always feel like when you ask somebody what their advice is, it really has like little actual <laughs> like 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 it really doesn't mean much to you until you go try the tire because mm -hmm. like because everybody's opinion is so different you know like i could swear up and down to somebody that rides in the same area as me that i don't know like an aggressor asagai setup is just like the best thing ever mm -hmm. and i could have the guy that's riding the same trails like oh i hate that tire it's just awful right, right. You know, it's like, it is it's super personal um the tire yeah. pressure comes into the equation and everything else how, how much you want to spend on them tires are so expensive now but yeah um, yeah i think there's some some general things that work like in our area it's really rocky it's older embedded rock um, yeah pretty technical in spots that sort of thing run what you want because you just need to get the right pressure and don't go out without a reinforced sidewall of some kind. Yeah. Nexo, a snake skin, whatever the latest, greatest name is for a sidewall protection. Yeah. 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 Other than that, pick what you want. Right. Right. Yeah. There's some similarities, I think, here, like depending on what area you ride. And if the area that I ride a lot, if you're not riding something that's reinforced, you're definitely going to be just slicing sidewalls and doing some walking. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you guys ever like? Are, are you considering the type of tire that's being put on the rim when you're you're manuf like considering your manufacturing or? Uh, so we we measure a lot of tires. Um, we have a, a fixture that we we uh, basically install the tire as it would fit on a rim. We apply pressure uh, 
outward force on the tire beads. We measure them at certain forces. We've correlated those forces to tire pressures, um, back to using CT scans and so on to mm -hmm. understand that. And uh, we don't necessarily think about a specific tire, but we do think about the range within a given application. So use mm -hmm. the flow example, like, well, okay, these are the five or six manufacturers and model types likely to be used on a flow. Mm -hmm. You know that they run from this size to that size in general across a range of production dates and mm -hmm. compounds and all the other variables that come into tires. This is where we think this tire, this rim needs to be sized mm -hmm. to work with that application. Um, you know, it's like use the flow example. Somebody could put a DH casing on there. Somebody could put just, you know, an exo type lighter sidewall casing on there. Mm -hmm. You know that. The bead on the Schwalbe is different than the bead on the Continental and different than the bead on the, the Maxis, et cetera. And that so there's no kind of standard on the bead then that you guys are <laughs> work with. Ooh, that's a sore subject. No, no <laughs> there is not. How is that determined then? It's just like whatever their, their tire manufacturer is like, yeah, this is a good bead. Yeah, I mean, they all have their own internal testing and standards they, they want to meet. Um, they'll test them in different ways. You know, some are doing just air pressure blow-offs. Some are doing water tank blow-offs. Some are doing various other things. Um, some are measuring tires on a, you know, inflating tires on a solid billet or steel rim fixture rather than on a real wheel. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. different. So all those things come into play. I say internal standards for them are going to dictate more than anything at a, you know, like a global standards level. Mm -hmm. Been debated in different ways and, and so on, whether that would be a good thing. But where we stand today, it's it's not the case. Gotcha. So do you guys see some some future land where stand stands is making tires? You think that's a possibility or? Well, we, we did tires once. Yeah. So did it go well? Uh, it, it went well for our purposes, and, and you know we'll take a little bit of credit, I guess, since since I'm here and nobody's going to tell me no at the moment. But uh, early days for us with tires, I mean, this is again 2003, four, five time frame, maybe six. Uh -huh. um, we had talked to some tire manufacturers. Was, oftentimes, they would send us tires and say, "Can you make this tubeless?" You know, we were they were all racing to get tubeless things to the market. Like, yeah, let's, let's see what it takes. And uh, same thing with rim manufacturers at the time before we were making rims. Hey, what do we need to do to make this rim tubeless? And, you know, we'd get mm -hmm. the feedback probably for free at times, which was maybe not a good idea. But um, yeah, I mean, those early tires, one was called the Crow, one was called the Raven. We worked mm -hmm. with Kenda to do those. So we had approached a few manufacturers and said, would you like to do a tire with us? We have some ideas. We know mm -hmm. what works better as far as sealing, mounting, inflating, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we were told no everywhere we went with that idea. Um, mm -hmm. But Kenda listened a little bit and said, you know, we, we won't do a tire that says Kenda on it, but we'll do a tire for you guys. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, we did, we went down that path. Um, the tire is effectively a modified Karma, which was a fairly popular XC tire of the day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we did a few little tricks in the sidewall and how it was molded and so on that made it set up and seal easier. Those tires were effectively early tubeless ready. I think Von Traeger was maybe starting to dabble with their tubeless ready in mm -hmm. the same time frame. I uh, can't remember all the details now, but some of the tire manufacturers we went to with this idea said, 
you know what, just go ahead and get out of here now. We're, we're all UST. We're all full tubeless. We'll never do anything tubeless ready like what you're talking about. So for us, tubeless ready was standard type casings, modified bead area, sealant inside. And mm-hmm. we're just flatly told, no, that's a horrible idea. So it's nice to look back now 15 years later and say, hmm, guess it wasn't such a bad idea. Right. <laughs> it's tubeless ready and we all put some kind of sealant in there. Yeah. Yeah, I totally forgot about that UST when that first came out. That that Ma- that was Mavic, right? Yeah, yeah. They yeah. they had the first wheel sets. And they worked with Hutchinson on the tires. Then tubeless ready. What was the difference between UST and tubeless ready? I mean, that's still confused to this day. I mean, that that's a legit question we get all the time. And yeah. there is, there is some nomenclature at the global standards level that will be coming around that helps to try and clarify that. But effectively. I'm not trying to remember it verbatim. Tubeless tires don't require sealant. They hold air on their own. Tubeless ready uh, tires do require sealant. And and then your tube type tires, of course. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> huh. I didn't I, I remember whenever that, that stuff first came out and I was like, I don't know, man. I'm just buying this one over here. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, you know, there isn't one uh, you know, Bond Trigger did the TLR, the tubeless ready, which you know, it was the early name that stuck, and then you know, Specialized had a version to Two Bliss, and then you know, Schwabe has a version. Everybody has a version, but at the end, Two Bliss Ready is just intended to mean put some sealant in there. Right, is. right. So there are some people though that were willing to run with no sealant, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Save a little weight, I guess. Well, the tires weighed like 150 grams, 200 grams more. They had an additional liner, a butyl tire liner inside the tire casing for air uh-huh. retention. And it didn't work that well, and it was heavier, and then it made your tire ride a bit stiffer and less compliant. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> so, I mean, what? Right. So um, so what's what's um, new over there right now? You guys came out uh, with that Dart tool not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. So Darts were... Uh, a couple years ago now. I mean, we're always working on new things. Newer things are in the the rim line, but the dart was actually brought one along here. I brought props. I had to have some props. So I've got right my, my dart tool. But um, this was a project that uh, I was I was sort of. I'm not a chemist. I'm not going to pretend to ever be a chemist. But I was playing around with the idea of a solution that would work with the sealant to cause it to clot a little bit quicker in punctures mm-hmm. and. About the same time I was playing around with that, uh, I was contacted by an inventor in Australia who said, uh, hey, I've been working on this idea. It's this additive you put in the seal and it clots a lot quicker. And I said, how far along are you with that? Well, I've got provisional patents. I'm like, okay, I'm done. Um, <laughs> talk. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's a brilliant guy. He's a PhD organic chemist. Doesn't work in the bike world necessarily, but likes bikes. And mm-hmm. we chatted a bunch and uh, came around to what we now know as the dart, which is effectively taking his his idea from the chemistry side, we impregnate it into a fabric. Mm-hmm. And it's that little guy there. So that's that's the feather or dart itself. You can, if you can see that thing. Well, I don't know which right. camera direction, but it's just this little feather shaped thing. And uh, that fabric's impregnated with the chemical. So when you have a puncture that's too large for sealant, you still have fresh sealant inside. You just uh, place this into the puncture site, jam it through the casing, pull it off, and the feathers will stay inside. And then we call it the DART. Again, acronyms, right? Dual action repair for tubeless. Oh, there you go. 
Yeah. I didn't realize that was an acronym. Oh, it is. It is. I was it's, fine with it just being a dart. <laughs> it's of the thing, you know. Um, so the dual action is that if there's a mechanical plug action happening, just like, you know, the sticky ropes of the world. Yeah. But there's the second mechanism, which is the chemical reaction, which is causing it to clot on, on contact with the ceiling. Uh -huh. so, um, optimized for our ceiling, of course. It may or may not work with others, but optimized for ours and you know dark tools have one on either end we sell a little refill packs but you know for me i just i carry a dart and one of our two ounce bottles all the time mm -hmm. and feel pretty pretty secure in the fact you'll be able to fix any puncture out on the trail um you know i had i had one puncture during testing manufactured puncture i sliced a tire with a knife put mm -hmm. five darts side by side in the puncture site and rode the tire for months Oh, wow. Once they're in there and the ceilings make contact, it basically glues them into place. They're airtight. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not going to pull out. The little feathers, when they contact the ground and so on, will wear off over time. Mm -hmm. But that's the exterior part of the casing, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. We don't call it a permanent repair. It's enough to get you out and get you back and, and fixed up. But they, they do work and they do hold and last. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't used those before. Um but I've definitely had the bacon strips in my tires for a long amount of time. And yep. they're not supposed to be permanent, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, you dollars, right? Right. Exactly. Well, and since then I saw somebody, I don't remember who it was on YouTube or something like that, that you could put like a tire patch on the inside of your tire. Yep. And um, ever since I learned that that's been my go-to, especially with, like you said, I mean, with the way that, tires are the availability is still not good yet i mean i can definitely walk into a shop and at least maybe find the tire that i want maybe not the compound or the right. sidewall or something like that but <laughs> it seems like whenever you get a good one that's when you get that big hole in your tire like three rides in you're like the top this is new i'm not throwing yeah. this away you know right. so but that's that that like put the, the patch on the inside thing that works pretty good. I've been like, so yeah, I mean, that. if you could, you, if you go on the old Wayback Machine website and, and look at our site from 15 years ago, you'll find this with patching instructions. Oh, yeah, it was on there. Yeah. How to how to patch a tire. Um, you clean the clean the casing really well. You don't want any dried sealant or anything there. Apply the patch and we, we clamp them into place and do the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. some people stitch big slices together and patch them simultaneously. That that seemed to work for them. Yeah. So. Yeah, I heard people stitching. I just don't know how that how much of that I would trust, but I've definitely gotten um, tried some th few things out on the side of the trail now and then. Whenever you're like, <laughs> okay, we're gonna put a tube in, an empty pack of goo, <laughs> some leaves. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whatever it takes to get home, right? So, absolutely. So, you had mentioned something a minute ago that that I think is one of those things that you hear a lot. Is there anything actually that can go wrong or bad if you have two different kinds of sealant in your tires? Like, say I'm using a different brand and then I mix it with yours or something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, I think there are some out there that use a similar base to us with the natural latex. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not going to tell you to go mix them. It may or may yeah. not work. It's not going to be optimal by any stretch right. of the imagination. If you had a little residue left, you're like, oh, you need to fix it. And your buddy's like, oh, I have this. You put it in. You're probably not going to hurt anything. Right. To any extent. 
but there are also a number of sealants on the market now and you know outside the us there are way more um that use a lot of different chemistries and you wouldn't want to mix those together at all you, you can end up with some sort of coagulated mess in there so it could be it could be ugly on the inside yeah yeah i'm not going to go as far as to say you're going to cause like the tire to melt or anything. yeah uh it's probably not going to be a good situation it's probably not going to be very effective against that next puncture etc so would the best thing to do like take the tire off like rinse it out wash yeah 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 if you were to switch you know from one brand to another you definitely want to clean the tire as best you could i mean like peeling out every little piece isn't likely to be necessary but clean it as well as you can and, and apply the new mm -hmm. with that latex as the the base um i've got it in my clothes whenever uh -huh. i'm like changing a tire on the side of the trail or something like that is there any secret stands way to like wash that stuff out or i, I wish i could tell you yes um <laughs> we've all written some article of clothing with it at some point uh, yeah the best thing to do is as soon as it gets on the clothing or you know your work apron whatever the case may be is to rinse it with cold water that's your best uh -huh. bet um, but once it dries and it's kind of impregnated in the fibers and so on it's, it's pretty really difficult well. to get some. yeah yeah i, I bought a bunch of the problem there are some chemicals that could break down that latex but they're also going to ruin your clothes yeah i tried that i went out <laughs> <laughs> just out of like curiosity, you know what I mean? I, I had a pair of shorts that just got just demolished because I had a cush core in and I like sliced the sidewall and I had to take it out. And I was like wearing the cush core, you know, around my chest. Or whatever. <laughs> right. And uh, I just got sealant everywhere. And I didn't know that that was a problem until <laughs> I washed them and dried them. Right. Of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Home Depot and I'm going to buy like all kinds of stuff that's probably horrible <laughs> to put on these things and just see if I can get it out. And um, let's just say none of them were a hundred percent effective. So yeah, I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was <coughs> definitely interesting along the way. So um, what, what else you got going on over there? You got, um, What's the, oh. the React radial impact? <laughs> I mean, I forgot about some of these. Um, Chris I'm just Curry, pulling up on your About Us page or whatever. <laughs> yeah, Chris Curry, our creative uh, director that, that left a few months ago, um, he was great at creating those technologies and so on. There you go. His specialty. Um, so React was, uh, oh, geez. I think it was radial impact yes yeah, it's radial impact absorbing carbon tech you should quiz me i should know this stuff right yeah. <laughs> radial impact absorbing carbon technology so that was the whole compliance thing right uh -huh. so we've done hundreds of drop tests on rims and things at different pressures and spoke tensions and tire constructions and all these all these things people tout but i mean there's a there's an old video on our YouTube channel, I think, somewhere of us doing some of these impact tests and showing aluminum versus carbon and how much the carbon uh, mm -hmm. would actually deform under load before it failed and that sort of thing. Um, so that was it. We were, we felt like we hit on a really good geometry and mm -hmm. really good carbon layout that mm -hmm. could withstand those impacts. And right we applied that, that methodology to all of our models at this point. <clears throat> Do you think that the um, 
back to tires again. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go bounce all over the place because that's <laughs> what I do, I guess. <laughs> do you think that why the wide tire, whenever the, you'll see that by like Maxis, is that mm -hmm. actually, you think that's really beneficial or you think it's just uh, kind of a marketing thing? Uh, well, they did alter the, the geometry of those tires a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. The very early ones, I won't say that they didn't change much, but they they measured differently. Yeah, yeah. So depending, yeah. early ones they said were for 35 millimeter rims. Nothing against uh -huh. Maxxis, but personally, I, I've got them on my own bike. They said they were for 35s, but if you mounted them on 30s, they actually looked a lot better. Had like a more natural tire mm -hmm. shape. You could, you could see that, okay, this is the center knobs, or if you lean the bike, it's going to actually have a transition knob and then a, and not a super sharp defined edge, but it's going to have the mm -hmm. ability to put the tire on edge where yeah. if you stretched that tire onto a 35, it kind of flattened the crown of the tire a little bit and mm -hmm. maybe this very squared edge, which maybe for certain styles and certain conditions would work. But uh, yeah, in general, it was, it was iffy. Like we thought, if I remember right, this is when we're working on part three generation rims. We thought that some of those look better on a 28 millimeter width than they did on a 30 or 35. It was, mm -hmm. and some of that's subjective. We're looking at it saying, this is what we think the right tire shape is. Mm -hmm. Of course, had a different opinion, but um, you can so put them on different rims and get different characteristics. That's kind of the end of the story is yeah. don't, don't go buy everything that's on the package, you know, try it on the width rim you like using. Yeah, what works for you? Do you ride in? How much do you lean the bike? How much do you, you know, pedal in a straight line, and so on and so forth? Yeah, yeah. So, but you said overall, you guys really prefer to be in that thirty millimeter range for the the your rims that you're building. For a lot of tires, so we have something called wide right, which is looking at the width of the rim versus the width of the tire, and, and there are some some standardizations around how tires should be measured going forward. Uh, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the idea being we, we're trying to get that proper shape, as we would call it, on a given rim width. So we, we'll look at that and say tires from this size to that size are appropriate for a 25. For this mm -hmm. size to that size, generally appropriate for a 28 or a 30, et cetera. Um, just, again, yeah. opinion and how we think they should ride and handle and what the shape should be and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Is there a... Is there a a pressure that you guys think is, is best for your kind of like, what's the sweet spot? No, no, no. Everybody's different. Again, riding conditions, tire construction, style, et cetera, mm -hmm. all factor into it. There are, you know, there have been a few apps come along recently. You know, I think SRAM has a calculator and Silk has a calculator and all those might, might be able to get you close. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to have just a basic, really basic formula years ago when, when there weren't 29ers and 2.8 tires and all those things out there um, mm -hmm. that would get you close. But everything's just a starting point. The best thing you can do when you switch wheels, tires, get a new bike, have a small loop you like to do with the kind of conditions you ride in most often. Mm -hmm. Maybe start with that pressure that one of those calculators recommends, but take a lap, drop the pressure one or two PSI at a time. If it starts to feel too, you know, squirmy, then mm -hmm. maybe you come back up and go the other direction. You say, well, I'm bouncing around or I don't like the vibration through the handlebar or whatever, then dial it back down. Uh, but that's the best thing to do is to experiment one or two PSI at a time. A lot of people end up with a, a differential a little bit lower on the front than the rear, but 
yeah. yeah, I remember when I first went that first set of Stan's wheels that I was talking about and went tubeless. And I mean, before I was probably 50 PSI in a tube, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I remember buying the, those rims and it was like maximum pressure 40. And I was like, 40. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it took me a while to like even trust that I could get down to like 30 and not just like, right rip the wheel off or something like that nowadays you see some guys that are running like low 20s and stuff oh yeah yeah i mean at the elite racing levels people will do crazy low things at times but it comes back to you know finding that happy place where it doesn't squirm but it holds an edge and yeah you know what's more comfortable what's faster on these conditions and just mm -hmm. playing around a little bit but yeah we've we've been kind of the low pressure people for a long time really beating mm -hmm. that drum road and mountain and uh that 40 PSI rating was where we were comfortable with tire blowoffs uh, yeah. because of the variability of tires and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. If you went above that pressure, taking it into your own hands, but we know below that we're in good shape. And frankly, you should probably try riding down here. It's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, apparently that Ibis wheel hold 80 pounds of uh, pressure in it for a while because um, the other day my lady was, um, I usually pump her tires up for her and she was going for a ride and she was like, Oh, I need to pump this up. So she put 80 in her mountain bike mm -hmm. because she knew 80 is what I put in our road bikes. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> it didn't last all the way to the trail. She was like halfway there. It's just like, boom, yeah. <laughs> in the back of the car. But, um, I thought it was entertaining. So I figured definitely pushing that. the limits there. <laughs> yeah, definitely was. I think she learned a valuable lesson that day. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. The actual standard on the safety factor blow off is quite low. Tire manufacturers all go well beyond that in most cases, and and we do as well. But there's a reason not to exceed it. A, it's right. not that that well, and B, it's just uh, yeah, you're asking for trouble in some cases. Actually, I remember she said she put sixty because that's what it said on the side of the tire, and I was like, that's the other why, thing. We why did they even put that there? We hear that all the time and uh yeah you're not going to convince people to mark lower pressures on tires for whatever reason there it has come down there are a number of them that have come down quite a bit like why would maxis have 60 psi on a dhf like yeah you're gonna have you know, to have that on the show and ask them that one you know what i mean like it just doesn't make any sense like i don't right. understand that like why would you put that there you know yeah yeah and the number of people that we encounter especially you know more recreational riders and so on that you know maybe it's sea otter or something like that they want to come out and have a good time they don't you know ride their bike a dozen times a year etc it's great fun for everyone um, right. they'll come along and say well i just run whatever it says on the tire and like that's the maximum that's not what yeah. you should necessarily use yeah uh, let's let's dial it down so our approach has always been Look at the rim, look at the tire, and you need to use the lower of the of the two yeah. as your as your max, of course. So that's becoming kind of standardized globally as well. Everybody's agreed that yeah, that's that's the best approach. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, as you can see in the background here, I got the Cushcore box back there. How yeah. how does that affect your system? How do you guys feel about that when that like those type of systems came out? Uh, I mean, they're interesting for sure. Um, there's a number of them on the market, I think. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of them now. I mean, whenever I think Kushcore first came out, they were kind of like you guys a little bit. 
Yeah, uh, Chris Moore is very early to that game, and, and yeah. those guys uh, know Adam a little bit, and uh, we send them some sealant from time to time. I know they, they buy sealant as well, so I have nothing bad to say about any of those guys. Um, they came from a moto background, and mm -hmm. there's some similar technology used in certain off-road motorcycle applications. Yeah, yeah. A bit different than full moose, but... Um, but as far as like how your product works, you don't really have any, it doesn't, no. doesn't mess with it or. Um, you know, we've done some testing with it and so on and see some, some interesting things, but one of the early ones we, we sponsored, both of us, uh, both companies sponsored the GT team years ago. I can't recall if, uh, if Kushcore is still a GT or not, we still work with them and mm -hmm. we we're at one of the Enduro EWS races and, there were some issues around uh, cuts at the top of the rim and the, you know, kind of the pinch flat zone there. Mm -hmm. And what we were having trouble with was getting, even with Kushcore installed, it would still pinch in that tire casing. You couldn't get the sealant down around the Kushcore because it's pressed out tight against the sidewalls. Mm -hmm. And getting the sealant down in there to even try and help on a pinch flat, which isn't easy mm -hmm. either way, uh, was difficult. But beyond that, it doesn't really cause us any problems. Um, any of the other other ones i've seen some some of the other brand stuff that looks even more how would i say like Kushcore is kind of almost like a, a latex kind of rubbery feeling to it but there's some of them out like uh the, the company that's red i can't think of the name right now source the of yeah there there seem like way more foamy like i would be concerned that maybe it would absorb some of the the sealant yeah, I don't know the specific foams they're all using. You know, yeah, push cord is more like what I call like a sneaker foam. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, that makes sense. Thing. I see what you're saying. Uh, and there were some like, they weren't real open cells, but Huck Norris, if you remember that one, you don't see yeah. those around too much as much now. But those had a tendency to really collect a lot of sealant in them. Uh -huh. You know, really kind of sop it up. Um, gotcha. you know, those those sorts of things were more problematic for sealant than than the the Tannis or the push cord. There's a few mm -hmm. others along those lines. Uh, the Vittoria, um, just yeah, kind of yeah. close yeah. cell foams that don't absorb and don't really cause any problems. I, in general, I think those inserts are they're nice in the fact that they're modular. You know, you like mm -hmm. them, you need one on the rear, go ahead. Uh, I don't use them, I've tried them, but I'm fine too. It's if I needed to put one in to go play at the bike park for a day, I, I could do that. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's nice to have that approach, I think, for people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a I'm I'm like 250 pounds, so I feel like for a guy my size, it makes a big difference in the cornering. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, I'm sure there's some other 250 pound guys that that argue it the other way. So yeah, for me, it, it seemed like a, a huge difference in the cornering, and not I I don't really use it for like let's just say rim protection. Mm -hmm. it, it's definitely like. When I talked to the Kushcore guys, they definitely sold me on the science. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, yeah, there, there's uh, definitely presses out more on the sidewalls than some of the other uh, versions on the market. And you know, it's a pretty tight fitting hoop. Obviously, you've installed them. You, you know what that's all about. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, which has some of its own characteristics that in parts in the wheel itself. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's yeah. A good definitely makes um putting wheels on a little 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 more interesting and <laughs> i have a set of the nv 735s so they have like a rim strip on them as well right so you add that rim strip and kush core on a wheel and you just want to punch baby jesus I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a tight fit 
Yeah, it's definitely um, it's one of those things where sometimes I question whether I want to do it again. But um, once they're on, they're on, right? So mm -hmm. then there's that. Um, so when you guys were designing your wheels, you didn't have um, any concerns with any any of the those those different inserts like making any issues with the wheels i heard some manufacturers like initially were like saying oh well that rim cracked this way because of the insert or something like that uh we have seen some of that in testing uh-huh yeah. and, and it's not not push core necessarily or one of the yeah. other brands, but yeah different ones the way they fit the way they interact with the tire and the rim the type of impact you could see different failure modes mm -hmm. um it's not to say that it caused anything or prevented something from happening, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you can see different characteristics. You've, you've added another element to the system effectively yeah. and it, it can behave in a different way than, than you're used to. Uh-huh. Interesting. <clears throat> so do you guys have, have anything on the horizon that you're uh, kind of, kind of working towards or? Well, I hate to say it's on the horizon, but uh, you know, we launched our, our Mark four, our fourth generation aluminum rims uh, effectively last August along with our S2. So the Mark IV is like our premium alloy welded product and our S2 is our premium or performance alloy. So that's our sleeved product. Um, those, you know, that came along in, in August officially, we kind of relaunched them again recently because we finally had enough of them to start going around. Uh -huh. We've been in such a supply deficit for so long that, Sure, they were officially available, but they weren't really available. They were starting to show up on OEM bikes. Um, you know, working with the Transition and Cannondale and GT and Niner and those types, and they would start showing up on those bikes. And I think the Zari was actually the first one with the S models, the, the new S2 models on bikes. So we were able to start, you know, filling that OEM demand, but we didn't have anything for aftermarket. So we've effectively relaunched those recently with all so the mark is you can still get that in an arch and a flow. It seems like it's just yep. that. Yeah. It's available in crest arch and flow. So 25, 28 and 30 millimeters wide respectively. Uh -huh. And uh, those, that's what brings in the asymmetric. That's the big change with the mark four uh, generation. Gosh. Replacing all the mark threes. And then with those for the complete wheels, we did an all new hub project. So mm -hmm. we worked with uh, Jacob Project 321. He mm -hmm. had a unique design around the free hub mechanism using magnets instead of springs under the poles. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we went about designing a shell and working on the preload mechanism and the axle and so on to put all new hubs into the Mark IV wheels, which we're super happy with that hub and its preload adjustment. And I mean, priorities there are on engagement speed and, and free rolling, you know, less drag in the whole system. And that preload mechanism is really what what makes it work. It's kind of the magic. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, I mean, the magnets maybe are more magical, but uh, the, okay. uh, the preload mechanism. So we are evaluating that, like going back into the details. A lot of hubs on the market, uh, Project 321 has it, but a lot of them don't have a preload adjustment. Our previous hubs didn't have a preload adjustment. And what we found with clamping force of rear axles, um, depending on the... I mean, there's so many different rear, rear axles. They look the same, basically, but different thread pitches, different links, obviously, different mechanisms to tighten them, whether it's a QR-looking lever or a cam closure or just a hex. We found the clamping force to vary. I don't remember the exact numbers, but 
two to three X across the different styles. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just different loads you're applying to the hub and every piece in that hub across the axle with bearing bores, the shoulders on the axles, the end caps all have a tolerance and those tolerances stack up. And without that preload mechanism, you can't dial in that bearing. And uh, the, the difference is night and day. If you, you have a hub with a preload mechanism that's done right, it rolls and spins so smooth. Uh, and the durability has been off the charts for us with this, this model. And some of our investors that could kill a hub in three rides previously have been on them for over a year now without issues. Hans Ray has been a longtime sponsored athlete who loves to do trials on his e-bike these days. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he, he can put a hurting on a hub and they're, they're rolling great for him. So super happy with that. And they're finally available at some level. Not a lot of them, but they're out there. Yeah, I'm real familiar with uh, Project 321. I've done a, basically I've been running his wheels for that, that first set of wheels that I was talking about. Yeah. Those were Project 321 hubs that I had in that. that nice, set of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that um, way back when. So yeah, Jake, Jake's a good dude. I definitely yeah, like yeah. his hubs. Known him a long time. He used to, to buy rims from us and strip the black anodize off of them, polish them, re-anodize them in colors, match them up to his hubs. Sounds uh, like a Jake thing to do. Oh yeah, yeah. He was selling those for a while, and uh, our product manager here, Drew Hanna, had worked with Jake when when Drew was at Cannondale because Jake was doing all the lefty hubs and so on and yeah. all the lefty parts. And so we went back a long ways. So both of us, Drew and I, knew knew Jake for a long time. So when we wanted to do this new hub, and we had tested uh, his hubs quite a bit, somewhat maybe without his knowledge, but we tested them a lot on our fixtures, riding test riders, etc. He said, hey, how do you feel about doing a, a hub project together? And kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit. We said, no, nah, with you guys, I'm in. Let's do it. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, kind of went from there. I like the magnets better than the springs. Just because when you take that thing apart, <laughs> you don't have to worry about those stupid springs just yeah. shooting all over the place. I brought a hub, but I did not see my props. I got a, I'm like Gallagher over here with all his props smashing stuff. But uh, yeah, I didn't bring one with just the free hub, but you know, it's got the it's marked on there the 216 points of engagement. So it's nice and smooth, pretty quiet overall. We use the oil inside like Jake does, the magnets, like you said. Uh, mm -hmm. So and then you guys are getting the shell made somewhere else. And yeah, so the shells are made in Taiwan. And a couple of the other non, what we call non-critical parts, but um, Project 321 is making all the critical parts. Yeah. For the drive mechanism and everything. And then we assemble those in our, our facility in New York. Uh, right on. Before, before they go into wheels. Yeah. Cool. Can people buy your hubs alone or do they only come with your wheel sets? No, we, our agreement with Jake is that we just do wheels. That's our thing. Uh, uh -huh. We've never really sold hubs separately. So uh, for similar technology, you can get a Project 321 hub. Yeah, yeah. His shell is different and so on and so forth. He's incorporated or in the process of incorporating some of the features we worked on together. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if those are quite available yet, but yeah, he's always always got something interesting going on over there. Yeah, he does. Definitely. Definitely. So um, so basically you got that that Mark IV that released again, and you're saying that's an aluminum only. What right. do you... Um, where, where do you guys fall on the aluminum versus carbon carbon wheel kind of debate? Honestly, I go back and forth on it. 
Uh-huh. Um, I mean, we've done carbon wheels again since 2014. Got a lot of experience. We've done some things I think work really, really well. Uh-huh. The tooling's expensive. The, you know, recycling is kind of the big thing right now. You know, thermosets versus thermoplastics and what's really recycling, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, they, they can last longer in certain situations and some people can kill them quickly. Uh, aluminum at the end of the day is a really good rim material. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, going back years and years, I used to take calls, sales calls, and I would say, you know, you want carbon or do you want to buy three sets of aluminum? You know, what are, what are you, what's your intended use? Um, mm-hmm. What do you want to do with this? What's your budget? You know, let's, let's work with that because we can get an amazing set of aluminum wheels for a fraction of the price in some cases. And right. others are close to carbon pricing because of the you know, direct from China or what have you. But uh, the level of detail and engineering we put into it, aluminum can be a great, great wheel product. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it depends on what you're looking for as well. Yeah. But do you see the failures like in the carbon wheels um, being as catastrophic as people like tend to think they are? Like, because that's the argument I always hear against like carbon wheels is like, oh, you're just going to blow this thing up. And it's like, and I've broke a handful of carbon wheels already. And None of them have been like that, but I don't know if it's just my experience. No, I mean, it, it could happen, sure, but you can also yeah. really destroy an aluminum wheel. Right. Uh, you know, typically, and we get to see very, very low rate of failures come through, but mm-hmm. when we see them, it's oftentimes just like a hairline crack that's formed. So you've hit something hard, but because yeah. of the way we do our layup and so on, like our our goal is to one, have that compliance, but two is if a rim does crack from an impact, we still want the tire to retain air. So we're right. able to tweak and work around that a little bit and create the rim that, you know, nine times out of 10, if you hit it, it will just crack through the outer portion. The tire channel will remain intact, retain air in the tire. You can ride out maybe at a slower pace, but mm-hmm. you can get out of the woods and you're not going to have a catastrophic failure that you know, yeah. causes you to be injured or something of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. But they said people do some strange things sometimes. I mean, we've probably had just as many of them that uh, have been melted by car exhaust as we have spokes pull through. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Sticking the spokes kind of situation. So uh, that car yeah, exhaust thing's a real thing, though, huh? Oh, it's real. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, <laughs> we've seen car exhaust happen a handful of times. We've seen people uh, try to dry a rim. I'm not going to name names or people out there that tried to dry a carbon rim next to the fire. Uh, oh, that was bad. That's we had a racer uh, one time at 24 Hours Old Pueblo uh, decide that they were going to lean their wheel and tire up against one of the propane heaters. Um, oh. Also bad for carbon wheels. Yeah, it doesn't work out very well. Yeah, we've seen a few. We have seen I, a few. I would imagine. What's your, uh, what's your warranty process like over there for the wheel sets? Yeah, I believe on carbon now we do a seven year, which is effectively, you know, expected lifetime for us of a mountain bike wheel. Yeah. Um, so we don't call it lifetime, but it's, I guess it's effectively lifetime. But we also, we don't give people a hard time about anything, honestly. Is it kind of like a no questions asked or like some yeah. of the companies or? If, if we're asking questions, it's because we're genuinely curious about what just what the heck happened so that we can maybe head this off at the past the next time. You know, yeah, yeah. Use that information. 
I mean, when somebody calls with a warranty wheel, we're we're asking questions about what kind of cassette they run, what what the bike setup is, you know, all these kinds of things, because that information helps us make a better product the next time. Mm -hmm. Do you guys ask for them back sometimes so that you can like examine them or sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. If it's, if it's a new type of failure or saying, Hey, I was literally, you know, feel just riding along. Um, and then we get it and it's filled with like dirt and you know, there's massive scratches on it. Then we have to say, well, maybe that wasn't just riding along. Right. But, uh, yeah. You can stand to learn a lot if it's a new type of failure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, if it's something we've seen before, you know, maybe we don't need it back. You know, the, we sell globally. So if that wheel is in uh, Finland and it's $190 to ship it one way, we might just tell you to keep it. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Field, destroy it, put it in the bin so nobody else can get hurt. But yeah. Uh, so do you have a crash replacement price or is it just you, you'll swap it out? We do a warranty on, on pretty much everything carbon. Uh, uh -huh. Question. Uh, we do offer crash replacement. If, if you literally said, hey, I did this and I was stupid. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll help you out. We want, we want you to keep running our wheels, frankly. So, uh -huh. um, you know, we're going to find a way to, to make it right. And sometimes somebody will call and say, uh, I literally backed over this with my car. And yeah. It's completely my fault. I just need a new wheel for my, my event. And yeah. We work with people. Got it. Yeah. It's interesting because like some companies are not that way at all. And, you know, and other ones are really trying to keep people happy and on their product. And it's yeah. interesting to me, like, um, that there's still such a wide, like, gap between, like, what one company offers and another, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could tell you a lifetime and then hassle you every time you call them, but <laughs> what could yeah. be Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You say, well, this is, you know, expected lifetime of something. And, and we've increased that over the years as, you know, materials get better, manufacturing gets better, et cetera. Yeah. People have a, you know, their expectations change about how long a wheel should last, that sort of thing. But yeah, we're, we're yeah I had a, had a buddy with a brand new bike and the wheel set from that bike company and um, first run, like not even three minutes into it, going down this like enduro trail and broke the rim and they were a hundred percent not working with him at all. It was like, <laughs> like, you know, they gave him a crash replacement price of like four or 500 bucks. And it was just kind of one of those things where it was like, you could look at the rim. It was pristine except yeah. for this like failure in it, you know? And it's like, come on, man. That, that was, I was really blown away that, 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 that situation happened. Yeah. Especially when they're, Go ahead. See, I, won't, I won't say it's every one, but if there's a if there's a defect, a manufacturing defect in a carbon rim, we're yeah. not talking carbon steers or carbon forks here, but a manufacturing defect in a carbon rim, you're going to find it pretty quickly in use. If, if it didn't yeah. get caught somehow in the QC process, uh -huh. and you know you you won't find that minor manufacturing issue four years down the line. Right, right, right. It's going to show up. So. And what what kind of things would get go wrong in QC that they would that that could lead to something like that? Uh, you'd be surprised what can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we we have uh, you know, people that monitor production for us in Taiwan that aren't involved with the production itself. You know, they're they're independent, and uh, it can be anything from voids to you know using material that was technically you know expired or was left out of the, the freezers for too long 
Um, oh wow! Issues with improper pressures during the curing stage, or um, you know, post curing, they have to clean up edges that kind of the flashing that appears as it's squeezing out from the molds, the epoxy. They could be too aggressive about removing um, that flashing and cause damage to the rim, things of that mm -hmm. nature. So those those are all things that are QC'd by the manufacturer before they uh, are QC'd by our independent person, and then we QC them again in New York before they're assembled into wheels. So uh, even with random lot inspections, you're, you're seeing a lot of the rims out of a given batch up close. So. Yeah. I mean, still some stuff will get through, you know, it's like you can't catch everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's all comes down to having good processes in the first place. You know, there's, there's I bought many... a set of handlebars over the weekend and um, you can't put grips on like, <laughs> like the outside, of the bar is right. You know, if you measured that, it's probably dead on, but it slides on about an inch and a half. And then it, you need a mallet to put them on any further than that. And that's not the way they're supposed to go. <laughs> Something doesn't sound right there. Yeah, sure yeah. So, I mean, stuff happens. I mean, sometimes people get, you know, they take their one experience as the experience of like the entire company. And it's like, come on, man. Like, yeah. like, like they really, that's their object, you know, it's like <laughs> put out some crappy handlebars or whatever, you know, rims or whatnot. It's like, give them a break, you know? So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gerald say no, nobody comes to work and wants to do a bad job on any right. given day. You right. might get some right. real wing nuts that, that could sabotage something, but yeah. nobody's trying to give you a hard time about your handlebar. Yeah. Right. Looking back over the years that you've worked there, is there any direction that maybe you guys went for a while that in hindsight you're like man i wish we wouldn't have done that i can't say there is really i mean yeah. we we don't do any road product right now outside of uh -huh. sealing tape valves for road uh -huh. uh, of you can use a dart on a road tire the same as you can a mountain tire uh, but we did we did our alpha rim brake road rims we did a disc version of that uh, both with what we call a 340 and a 400. Again, back to weight. That's about what they weighed at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and those were really good, but we we didn't stay in that segment. Uh, and we did a carbon road wheel that was, I still ride them, they're phenomenal. But that was a, an instance where road tires weren't quite there yet. We've always struggled with road tubeless, kind of waiting for tire manufacturers to come along. And now, of course, there are tons of options. They're running them in the tour today and so on and so forth. There's a lot of tubeless into the road world. So they can ride them now. I thought that I knew that was, I don't follow road racing very, very tightly, but I knew for a while that it was one of those things. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, you know, people that still hate the fact there are disc brakes and tubeless tires in the pro Peloton, but they're there. Um, so the disc brakes are allowed now too. Oh yeah. I knew that was another one. They, they had to have the, the, the rim brakes for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, road is probably an area that, you know, as a, as a brand that was originally mountain bike, it was hard to break into road, but we knew we had something to offer with a little bit lower pressures and some of our tubeless designs and so on. And, you know, maybe we'll revisit it someday, but it's tough to break in against a lot of brands in, in the road market have been around a long time. We have gravel wheels though. I mean, that's pretty close, right? Yeah, so gravel for us is a different game altogether. We've done a lot of gravel stuff. Um, yeah, our Grail Carbons are phenomenal, phenomenal gravel wheel. Um, you know, we're 
using our Crest aluminum product now a lot in gravel and people come up to some, we have some, some really good racers around that run them and people say, what, you didn't, you didn't run carbon today? Like, no, these aluminum wheels are great. Uh, uh, it's the Crest at 25 millimeters wide, but we still do quite a few gravel products and it's a really good space for us. And a lot of people that are you know, riding gravel now have crossed over from mountain bike. You know, it's, it's their second, third bike, what have you maybe, but they knew tubeless from mountain gravel is just a natural extension like the day i don't want to get beat up on the trails i just want to ride around with my friends or, or try a new mm-hmm. event uh, gravel is a great place for that and, and those that were on the road and come to gravel realize that tubeless is the way to go pretty quickly if they hadn't tried it on the road yet and uh, yes yeah, it's, it's a good place for us yeah i have to try that i mean i i don't have on my my gravel bike i am actually riding slick tires right now mm-hmm. so it might as well just be a road bike but i don't run it tubeless and I've, I've never i've never done that so i should probably i have tubeless wheels on there oh there you go yeah just um <laughs> they're actually stands wheels actually there you go. So, so um that's funny i just thought of that so <clears throat> maybe one of these days I'll, i have to come around and get get around to it yeah it's worth it for sure the little bit lower pressures the lack of punctures and so on it's and you're familiar there's with some that. Si- I think they did some kind of a thing too, like some kind of science, uh, scientific study that they were saying that the lower pressures actually over time panned out to better times for people because there was like less fatigue on their body. <laughs> so then the, the, I don't know, that was the thing that I, I had read a while back. Like it was like, they did something like where you're running a hundred PSI or I think mm-hmm. some people were even run like 125 or something like oh, that. Yeah. But if you run like 80 or a little bit lower that it doesn't beat your body up as much. So over time you end up having better times. I don't know. Yeah. And I think there's a number of studies out there and, and you know, the fatigue thing I think is real as is um, you know, the fact that a lower pressure tire can conform to irregular surfaces where a higher pressure tire just bounces off of some of those things and even yeah. the smoothest roads aren't that smooth if you get down and look at them real close yeah right so those those rolling resistance studies that we're talking about for years were done on you know smooth steel drums and that sort of thing that didn't really mimic real conditions mm-hmm. and um, now that more of those studies have been done uh, yeah for sure we we knew it was happening because we were seeing race times come down when we were working mm-hmm. with athletes and and yeah there are studies out there to back it up yeah yeah so you you guys have a a a stands team that you guys sponsor we sponsor a lot of different athletes um across the range from cross country to enduro downhill into the the free ride big mountain Mm -hmm. uh, type of things Uh, a lot of athletes that are doing uh, like the crankworks events so they're doing you know pump track and slalom and and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth We've covered the range through the years with multiple Olympic medals through multiple world championships and so on and so forth. But, uh, yeah, we've, we've just always kind of had some, some form of racing mm-hmm. pretty deep in our, in our blood. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Right on. Do you think that there's a good, um, like correlation to people? Do you think people make correlation between like, your product and that pro racer whenever they're sponsored by you or I don't think there's necessarily a real strong correlation, maybe in certain instances, you know, a particular Mm -hmm. product shows up on a particularly influential rider or what have you, but Mm -hmm. um, 
it's not that strong. Um, mm -hmm. you know, part of it, it gives us the content aspects, you know, things to talk about, products right. being used. A lot of those writers are really good at testing. Occasionally, they'll come across some that aren't very good yeah. at providing feedback. They just aren't as in tune with certain things. They they know what they like, but they can't tell you what they don't like about the new item or something of like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, different types that way. Um, and then just brand but, recognition, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know being involved in the kind of the pointy end of any of those sports just helps develop products and and be around other people that are into cutting edge technologies and things of that nature that we can eventually bring into everyday use. Um, you know, some brilliant people are are you know the mechanics in the pits and things like that. They're coming up with new little fixes and you know, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be great if we could do this or that? Yeah, let's let's go work on it. Um, yeah, yeah. As much as the the athletes themselves, it's oftentimes the mechanics that you get to know and work with, or or you know, engineers and product managers from other brands uh, with suggestions and things of that nature all come out of those you know little communities that infest the race events. Yeah, you think twenty six is dead? <laughs> as far as. Uh, Retail sales, maybe. I saw a bit of a resurgence the last two years. Yeah. Uh, we do make a number of 26-inch products, so I wouldn't call it dead. Yeah, More of them are now found on kids' bikes. Than uh -huh. anything else. So we work with a few brands that do only kids' bikes. Uh -huh. And yeah, we make the Crest as an example. In certain versions, we make it a 20, a 24, and a 26-inch version. Um, so they're out there. Um, yeah, it makes sense for think, for the kids' bikes to to not go to twenty seven five or something like yeah, that, yeah. or I guess, yeah, probably, yeah, that that, that makes sense there. I know there's a lot of people, obviously, still in the 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 DJ kind of zone that are running twenty six. Yeah, well. yeah. Well, we have a number of pump track and slalom athletes that probably they're not going to say it too loud, but they're a little upset we don't have certain models available in twenty six yeah. inch. We can't justify. Another yeah. carbon mold just to make six rooms a year. Um, right, right. It's not in our, our capabilities, but yeah, kids bikes. I mean, they're so good now. I, I couldn't imagine getting a, a kid's bike at that age. You know, if I if I was 30 years, 30, oh geez, closer to 40 years younger and, you know, had a bike with stands wheels and, you know, mainstream suspension products and so on, be blown away. But that's yeah. what little rippers are on. It's pretty crazy the price of some of those bikes that like parents can pay for a for a bike that like the kid's gonna grow out of pretty quickly too. Yeah, you, you know? better have a couple siblings uh, to yeah. pass it along. Or, yeah, yeah, I mean, even even some of the ones that are not even full suspension, just uh, mm -hmm. like a front fork, and other than that, a rigid bike, and they're still like eighteen, nineteen hundred bucks. Because yep. they have like disc brakes and a dropper and all this stuff. And you're like, whoa, that is crazy. Yeah. I mean, appropriately sized crank arms and brake levers and all those kind of things make a difference for, for kids that are you know, learning. Yeah. And, I mean, that's why I show up at a trailhead and get blown away by a 12-year-old because <laughs> they grew up <laughs> on really nice bikes. And, you know, I, I get to ride once a week. Um, right. Right. Do you think that... Um, the bike industry is done with the new wheel sizes or you think that that uh you, you could see something else come out i would like to think so um we did some 32 inch prototypes a few years back for a guy but uh, i don't think that's gonna stick this point. that's not gonna stick 
You know, I'm, I'm 6'3", so I, I like the 29er. I'm comfortable on it. I can see uh -huh. that people wanted the smaller options, whether it's 27 or still back to 26. But yeah, I'd have to be a lot taller to want 32s or something of that. Yeah. I think I just, I'm comfortable on 29s. If they came along and I ride them and I like it, great, but I'm not looking for it. Have you ridden one of the mullet bikes yet? Yeah, yeah, we, we've played around on different stuff here. I think, uh, What'd you think? One of our engineers rides one on a pretty regular basis. Um, I'm 6'2". I'm really interested in that. I'm, I, I've, I've had a bunch of Bronsons over the years. So yeah. since they put that new mullet out, I've been really con considering <laughs> it. And I got a buddy that his wife has one that he's ridden a bunch of times. And then he went and bought some other mullet. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know. It's got my it's got my interest. I I, I need to get out there and ride, try one, see if it's really yeah. It's no harm in trying it, right? You can you can just swap yeah. a rear wheel for a day, and you know your bottom bracket might change, whatever. You don't have the ability to adjust your geometry, but you can try it pretty easily. Be, yeah, you know, yeah. I think I'm, I'm I'm gonna have to give it a shot here soon. I think for our train, my riding style, and so on, I I, I don't see me using it, but I'm not gonna knock anybody else. So I'll just, some of the teams we work with drive us crazy. We're like, oh, we're running 29s this year. And you ship them all their wheels. And they say, oh, well, we've decided to use the 29-27 setup. We're going to need new rear wheels. And then you know, <laughs> drive us nuts. But Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I've been a 27-5 guy for a long time. So <laughs> it'll be uh, – I've been slowly, slowly tasting the Kool-Aid. I started yep. with a, a 27-5 plus hardtail that I had for a while. And that kind of – dip me into the 29er and i have a, a 29er tall boy now too and i feel like the the way that the bike's geometries are now they have the 29er riding just as good where when i first tried them it was like this is just not the same you know yeah i mean i, I can't remember when i got my first one it was pretty early on 2005 or six yeah it was, on my first 29er. It, was it was pretty early but it was full suspension and uh, yeah I got comfortable on it and never turned away. But. Right on. That's good stuff, man. So anything that um, you, don't, you don't think that we talked about that, that somebody that's considering stands, what makes you guys stand out compared to uh, some of the competition? Well, I think in, in rim and wheel, it comes back to the kind of that attention to detail. It's kind of generic mm -hmm. you know, phrase, but I mean, we, when we do a new rim or wheel, we, we really dig into that stuff and mm -hmm. trying to hone in on the things that make tubeless work as well as it possibly can, given you know the variety of tires and applications and so on. So I think that carries through a lot of our other products, um, sealant and tape and valves and things of that nature. You know, again, we've been at it forever and we've seen a lot of things come and go and tested a lot of those competitive products along the way. You know, we, we still use a natural latex, which some people uh, you would disagree with and think synthetic latexes and things are, are maybe more effective, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, we still come out on top in the tests and everything and find that natural latex and nothing, all our natural additives in there and so on are a better option over petroleum-based products you'll find in synthetic latexes and things. So mm -hmm. I think those are the big things for us that... Uh, we go a long way there and then you know standing behind everything service and support and you know, distribution in 60 or 70 countries now and uh long-held distribution partners and oem partners so the support is deep and you know, 
product knowledge is out there. Is there anything specifically different about your valves compared to some of the other ones that are out there? Or? Uh, I would say there's not now. Of course, when, when we brought them to market, we kind of worked on the, the shape quite a bit and things of that nature. But uh, mm -hmm. there have been a lot of similar products brought to market yeah. since. Um, so there isn't a lot to differentiate on there right now. Of course, there's some other new valve products out there that are pretty, pretty interesting at the moment. Yeah. Are you the talking about you're talking about these these Santa Cruz ones? Yeah, reserve. Yep. Yeah, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> nah. I, I I am one of the few people there. I don't know. For me, it's just for the most part they're great. But I am one of those guys that likes to put my my sealant through the the stem, mm -hmm. you know. And um, I also have a hundred and seventy dollar park tool air compressor, yeah. you know, doodad that doesn't measure the pressure because of them. Um, and and my one up pump that I carry on both my bikes yeah. doesn't work with them. It was like one failure after another. And whenever I flew my bike to Jamaica with my <laughs> hand pump to pump. It, the tires up with and almost couldn't put air in my tires i was like this is it uh, <laughs> no, <I'm good>. done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i mean there's some interesting aspects to that valve and there's some other valves coming along like that that um yeah there are things we've thought about for a long time yeah and and always like you say found some sort of drawback um, yeah yeah we could design a new valve i think we have on paper a number of times that could uh yeah you know obsolete every pump out there <laughs> Right. But nobody's going to like that idea. Right. And that was the thing that, like, for me, that was when that happened to me with my bike and out being out of the country, was it just made me realize, like, well, one day if I don't have my pump for, like, let's just say I start carrying another pump, you know? Well, then one day if I don't have my pump with me and I'm out on the trail, there's a possibility that I won't be able to put air in my tires by yeah. the other guys that are standing around me, you know? And at that point, I was like, man, I'm, the the like cons are outweighing the pros you know yeah, and yeah. i would really love to have a, a a to see a new stem design come out that truly doesn't clog you know but um doesn't make me run into all these other issues you know yeah i think you know for to to their credit they came up with a way that it does allow pretty good airflow yeah no it does that great and which is great um, you know, for us and our rim designs, it's not something we think about on a daily basis because our rim design allows pretty much every tire to inflate with a hand pump if you want yeah. to your pump at most. Um, so it's never, it's not front of mind for us, but our thing, yeah. we think about clogging a lot. We think about sealant application a lot. Yeah. And, you know, a Presta valve core, 120 years old or whatever they are was never intended to have sealant anywhere near it. That wasn't, right. that wasn't a consideration at the time. So there's probably something in that realm that could be addressed. And, you know, is it a problem to have to remove a core to, to add sealant? Not necessarily, but could it be better? Sure. Yeah. And yeah, clogging, I'd say, is our number one concern. Yeah, today you can pull a valve core and replace it for a buck or a buck and a half. Not a big deal, but why waste something if you don't have to? Yeah. So some of them though, like just the bottom part that's actually in the rim mm -hmm. will just like, for whatever reason, it'll, it'll just get all kinds of stuff all oh, over. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yep. I've seen that as well. I, I literally, the same day I took these out of my wheels, I was changing my lady's tire and um, her, her like valve stem just was like, it looked like somebody dipped it in latex and took it out, you know? And right, right. I was like, well, <sighs> it, th these things, they happen, but um, I don't know. Like I said, my, my experience was not so great, but they pump up great. I will say that. <laughs> Good airflow for sure. Yeah. 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 Do you, um, do you watch much YouTube? Uh, here and there. I don't, I don't have any, any regular things I tune into, but uh, yeah, started playing on a enduro dirt bike or you know, dual sport type dirt bike a couple years uh -huh. ago. And some of the other bad influences here in the office I like to do that stuff too. So I watch a few of those videos and watch, uh, gotta watch wind masters do his thing, uh, uh -huh. wind TVs and so on. But yeah, I don't get a lot of time for just content consumption, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just ask. I usually ask people what, what they like watching. You just answered it anyway. So sometimes you get you hear some fun ones come up that you're not expecting. It doesn't necessarily have to be biking related, you know. So yeah, so usually it's for me. It's like remembering some TV show from my childhood or like some yeah. SNL skit or something. Like I bet that's on YouTube. Right. <laughs> my wife and I are looking up and entertain ourselves for an hour, but. Yeah, yeah. I, I was telling the kids about um in Living Color not too long ago. It was yeah, there you go. I had to pull up the old like homie the clown skits and stuff. Like that. <laughs> yeah, so. some fire marshal bill. Right, exactly. Early J Lo on there. Yeah. yeah, she was a fly dancer, right? Yep. Yeah, that's funny. Now we're dating ourselves, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat with us today. It was, I know you're a busy guy and you guys are, are getting ready to head over to Eurobike. So it was really fun sitting down, talking, talking to you guys about what you got going on over there and kind of getting to yeah. hear the ins and the outs. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, like you said, we're on our way to Eurobike. First international trade show for us in you know, two and a half years or more. So it'll be interesting to see what everybody's been up to and see some old friends. But yeah, hopefully there's a lot of new fun bike stuff to look at. Yeah, that, that show seems to be like the place that things really get released. It doesn't seem like Sea Otter is like kind of taking the baton from Interbike. So, yeah, it, it changes, I guess. And and so many of us now uh, will just release things when they're ready because yeah. you know, you've got your I guess, the supply chains that, you know, the word of the of the day at this point. But right. you want to have things in stock and available for people. You know, Apple kind of pioneered that in the electronic world years ago to, you know, on launch day, it's in every store. Right. Ultimately, that's the way to do it. Um, right. That means... It's not timed with a, you know, we used to show things at Interbike in September. You couldn't buy until March of the next year. Uh, who, who's yeah. willing to wait that long for anything anymore? So yeah, the shows are still really interesting. You know, it's, you know, from the exhibitor side and seeing other friends that are exhibitors or brands you work with, you get to, you know, go behind the curtain maybe and see something yeah. before it's ready. But generally, if it's on the show floor, you can buy it right away. So that's kind of nice. That'd be a fun one to go to. I, I, Maybe I'll, I'll set my sights on it because I think they have a public, like there's some public days and then there's some like um, yeah other other days that are for inside. So this year it's the first year in Frankfurt. Uh, it used to be in Friedrichshafen, but it's it's a big show, you know, just square footage wise. Yeah, uh, 
and uh, new location. It'll probably have a little bit different feel. You know, small town yeah. Germany on the lake versus you know a major city. Yeah, um, probably a little bit more of an urban mobility angle to some of it. But um, yeah, I think there'll be some interesting things. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I used to live close to Frankfurt, so okay, way, way back in the day. Good times, man. Well, like I said, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Any yeah, of you guys yeah. that haven't, I'm sorry. I uh, just appreciate having, having me. Yeah, on. yeah. Any of you guys that haven't stopped by the stand site, definitely go over there and, and check it, check it out. It's notubes.com, N-O-T-U-B-E-S.com. You can get over there and check out their, their mountain and their gravel stuff. Um, great products. Like I've, I've been running the Baron wheel for a while and they've, they've been pretty bomb proof. So I definitely can stand behind those. And like I said, back in the days, you used to run the flow flow hoops and they, they were nothing but good things to say about them. So definitely go over there and check it out as well as their sealant. It's definitely, they, they've been around since the very beginning. They're, they're the guys. So don't, don't forget when you're, when you're, when you're looking for something to go try out. Sometimes when you buy something that's a little cheaper, it's not better. I've found that out along, <laughs> along the way. <laughs> so those of you guys that haven't hit the subscribe button yet, please do that. Thumbs up if you enjoyed this and you're listening to it on YouTube. If you're checking this out on the podcast, do, do me the favor and go ahead and write a five-star re review. And um, like I said before, if you're thinking four stars, probably not worth your time. Anyways, really appreciate your time. Once again, Mike had a great time chatting with you. Everybody out there, remember, it only takes a bike to be a biker. Get out and be one.